there's a lot of complications mm-hmm. in terms of who can get who's drunk out of orbit. But I, I think that uh, we do have the technology today. We, we can go up and do it, but there's obviously some challenges, but that's why we start programs to take things from TRL one and two to, to eight or nine and actually go up and execute it. And, and if you look at the ESA timeline for the object they're getting out of orbit, it's uh, five years down the road and $129 million for a hundred kilogram objects. So these are, these are certainly obstacles we need to overcome. Back for another episode of the Cold Star Project. I'm Jason Canigan, the host. Wow. And I'm here with Michael Maloney. He is the founder of a company called Satellite Design for Recovery. We've been talking a lot about orbital collision detection and prevention with folks like Dr. Marie Baja and Charles Radley. And I'm glad to have Michael on because he is working on this idea of active debris removal. Michael, thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. Good so why... Yes. Why is this an important topic? Let's start with that because I run into a lot of folks, I'm going to say folks instead of a harsher harsher word, uh, out there who uh, usually on social media seem to believe that satellites are just going to decay into the atmosphere and burst into flame and that's going to be the end of them. Well, we would hope that would be true, but we're not guaranteed that to be true. Uh, Some of them don't do that and things land on the ground. But before we go there, Um, I looked at this debris issue for a long time now, and the one thing I noticed that we didn't do in the past, and this is what leads to such great approaches to recovering debris as harpoons and nets, which should be anathema to anybody working in the rocket science world of satellites. Uh, It is rocket engineering after all, or rocket science. So the, the key here is that and some people are doing this today, the word's getting out, uh, OneWeb is building their satellites with a dog tag recovery and AstroScale's working on people to put things on their satellites. But fundamentally, back in the day when we were building satellites and Ilsat and others, we never thought about recovery. I mean, the geosynchronous satellites are expected to be up there forever. It's this, this launch, uh, operate and abandon practice has to end. And, and that's really what led us to the crisis we're in today, debris. So uh, the idea is that first we need to build them to be recovered. And it's more than just putting handles on a satellite. It's not like, okay, we put a grappling bar on it, we're done. It's okay, well, you put a grappling bar on it, or maybe that's not the right approach, but come up with a good approach. We don't even need to have a standard approach. We just need to know that you've thought about it. Um, If you look at something like Envisat, they they built the satellite. It has a deployed uh, sensor over the adapter ring, which prohibits going to the launch adapter ring to recover it. So Design for Recovery says, don't do that. Don't stop us from recovering it. Think about recovery when you're designing the satellites. And uh, and so that's where this idea came up with. Yeah, I'm working for debris removal, but that's so far in the future that the question is, what can we do today? Debris is such a huge issue today. What can we do? Everybody throws their hands up and goes, too hard, too complicated. Hmm. I don't know where I can do anything. And the answer is, well, we have to start somewhere. So let's make it so that we can do cost of effective, successful remediation in the future, whether it's 50 or 100 years out. Okay, Michael, harpoons and nets. I didn't realize we were hunting uh, whales and butterflies. So it sounds like we can do better than that. Yes, I hope so. Okay, so you're saying ADR can be done today. We should start right away. Uh, The folks I've talked to in the resident space object detection and tracking industry tell me, first of all, the physics is terrible and not well understood and that they need to improve the systems for tracking these things. What else can we do? Well, um, ESA has just awarded a contract to clean space to go up and and get an object out of space and uh, Astroscale is working on that today. And 
the United States is completely missing in action. And the people with the greatest responsibility for the largest amount of junk that we need to get out of orbit are the Russians, um, which, by the way, have, as far as I know, if somebody could correct me, I'd like to hear it, uh, that uh, Russia has not claimed ownership of all the uh, debris from the former Soviet Union. So if, you know, um, there's a lot of complications in terms of who can get who's drunk out of orbit. Um, so, but I, I think that uh, we do have the technology today. We, we can go up and do it, but there's obviously some challenges, but that's why we start programs to take things from TRL one and two to, to eight or nine and actually go up and execute it. And, and if you look at the ESA timeline for um, the object they're getting out of orbit, it's uh, five years down the road and $129 million uh, for a hundred kilogram objects. So these are, these are certainly obstacles we need to overcome. Okay, you just mentioned the technology readiness level scale and prompted a question for my next space lawyer guest who I will confront with uh, what happens with legacy states like that. That's right, because according to space law, nations are responsible for the actions of their citizens and stuff they put up there. But what about a situation like that where you've got a former Soviet Union disbanding and then what, right? Who's responsible for that stuff? It, like it's that? the same issue as a company going bankrupt yeah. and abandoning their assets on orbit, which was actually was visited on the uh, Iridium bankruptcy where the court was going to order that all the satellites would be deorbited if nobody were to buy the assets of the company to, to mm -hmm. clean up that orbit. So, um, yeah, these are, these are certainly big issues, but I, I don't think they're insurmountable. And, and I th think we need to address them uh, rationally. I, I don't believe in this, this idea that we're going to accomplish this universal collective drive to go out and, and remove debris. I think we need to do it first nationally, uh, unilaterally, and then maybe bilaterally before we even dream about doing it multilaterally. Mm -hmm. And that, that is a question uh, as far as like adoption, developing of the process, and then uh, getting people to agree with it, that uh, Christopher Johnson from the uh, Secure World Foundation brought up when, and we discussed on his episode about well, how do you, do you do this from a top down or a bottom up, right? Do the, does a multi-nation conglomerate dictate, okay, this is how we're going to do it? Or do we get operators from the ground kind of figuring it out and developing it up? So it sounds like you're, you're on the operator side here. Well, it, it seems to me that, that um, the governments own the largest amount of debris in orbit, and it's mm -hmm. incumbent on them to go up and, and remove it. And I think it's fundamentally difficult to hold other people accountable for their debris when we don't hold ourselves accountable for our own debris. So my focus right now is that the United States needs to generate or develop or somehow find the money and the technology to go up and start removing our own debris from orbit. And, uh, and then once we do that, then we can work on getting others to be inspired to do that. Uh, leading by example would be the, the way to phrase that. Okay. Now, hmm. now, this may be a technical question that's not something you can answer right now. So, and I'm okay with being told that, but it just occurred to me if, if you have a, uh, an organization that puts up a bunch of satellites and they've got a constellation or a mega constellation up there and then they go bankrupt. Who is going to send the signal to deorbit, even if that decision is made later on? And how do they do it? Do they just take over that frequency? What happens? Well, there, there's obviously from the operations centers, they have the, the codes for the mm. commands uh, that they can do and, uh, and order that, but somebody has to be authorized by, mm. I guess, a bankruptcy court to actually work mm. uh, on the behalf of the bankrupt company or the creditors or whatever um, when it finally gets ordered. So I would imagine that would be a court action to do that. And you'd okay. have an order to do that. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I am learning as we go as well, and I'm not a ground station expert or anything. So <laughs> I'm a manufacturing process guy. So well, this actually, stuff is all new to me. Actually, I'd like to address that because, yeah. you know, th those of us who have been in the industry for decades and, and are new to the debris issue look upon the people that, and I just had a chance to, I was in Houston at the Orbital Debris Conference. Uh, I got a chance to meet Don Kessler and get my photo taken with him. And it was kind of fun because, you know, 40 years ago, you wrote this paper that said, hey guys, you know, if we keep doing this, this is probably what's going to happen. And we're watching this unfold in front of our eyes. And uh, so I want to say kudos to all those folks who've been doing this for 40 years. And uh, those of us uh, newcomers here uh, stand on their shoulders and say, hey, let's join the chorus and let's figure out how to do this. Very cool. Yes, and suddenly when people start talking about throwing tens of thousands of small sats into orbit, CubeSats, suddenly it becomes a bigger issue. I've, I have not seen more frantic discussion about these issues than in the past few months. So let's talk about cost. Who the heck is going to pay for this stuff? You're saying prevention is better than the cure. What can people do? Well, the, the fact the governments own most of the stuff in orbit it, it's incumbent on the governments to pay it's not like we're going to find a rich uncle that's going to buy our car or remove our debris um, this is a this is a, a cost that's if you look at the main contributors the united states uh, russia china india europe uh, i don't think you can find a more diffuse cost burden than the populations of those countries so uh, it's really incumbent on the governments to to come up with the money and i realize that uh, it's certainly not affordable, especially if you look at a 100-kilogram object coming out of orbit for $129 million, or mm. the, the, the quotes on Envisat were several hundred million euros. Um, with those kind of numbers, everybody says, you know, it's unaffordable, but it's always going to be unaffordable. It'll never be affordable. One's, one approach may be more affordable than another, but it's never going to be honestly affordable. It's always going to be, you'd always want to spend your money someplace else than removing an object from orbit. And, and I think ESA had a, um, Holger Craig, the, the head of the ESA debris office said a couple of years ago, he said, well, look, okay, Envisat has a 20% chance of causing damage over a 200 year period. Um, so it's going to cost us several hundred million euros on something that has an 80% chance of not causing any trouble or having any trouble in orbit. I mean, this is completely rational to say that th it's just ridiculous that we're going to find a way that it's going to be as uh, actually Matt Dench uh, tweeted the other day. He said, hey, I'll remove my satellites and it costs like $10,000 a piece, you know, but if I remove mine, is everybody else going to remove there? And this is the core issue of the debris problem. Hmm. Hey, this is Jason Canigan, the host of the Cold Star Project and the founder of Cold Star Technologies. I've decided to do something new. I've started doing daily update videos on who I met and what I learned the previous day in the space field. And it's a great sort of follow me thing. You can learn what I learn. I'm meeting a heck of a lot of people and learning a lot of things really fast. And the space field is really disparate. There are tons of nooks and crannies to go into and explore from legal, operational, you know, regulatory compliance and gosh the end customer who would have thought about that right so you can sign up for this if you go to coldstartech.com slash msb that's short for make space boring the mission we're on then you can sign up and in your email you will get a daily notification that the new video has been posted I'm also thinking about doing some branded mini courses and summarizing papers as uh, I'm able to. So those will be some goodies that are in there as well. So if you're interested in that, go to coldstartech.com MSB and join us on the mission to make space boring. Now back to the interview. So somebody's going to have to have the guts to step up and say, we're going to do this if it's a yeah. private thing. 
We have entered into the economic policy zone here for nation yes. states and deciding on taxation and where is this going to get paid from. And the uh, citizen is the one who's going to bear the burden here. Uh, as soon as I hear large capital expenditure projects, I begin to get nervous <laughs> as a as a economist student. Well, it's only going to get more expensive. Mm -hmm. It's not going to get it's not going to get cheaper, as Darren mm -hmm. McKnight says. Pay me now or pay me more later. Uh, and you can imagine that that there are ways of going up and getting some of this debris down now that will be mm -hmm. precluded by the higher flux density of operating satellites that can get up there in orbit. So. You know, the, the, the question is, is, when do we start? And the answer is, well, we need to start now. And we're not going to have the technology perfected. It's not going to be cost effective. There's a lot of non-recurring that has to happen. Uh, but primarily, I think the reason I focused on design for recovery and it's starting to get the messages getting out is we have to do something today to make sure that those missions are as affordable as, as possible. And so therefore we need to put things on them and, um, and, and get that work started now. Now the problem is industry says, if it's not in the RFP, I'm not bidding it. Mm -hmm. And the operators say, the, the, the buyers say, the operators say, well, if I don't know that they can do this cheaply, I'm not putting it in the RFP because I'm not taking any more mass to orbit than I need. So somewhere this chicken and the egg thing needs to get solved and it looks like it might have to be a regulatory issue to actually get these people to mandate to, mm. to the to the user operators and the manufacturers that you need to do this. Right. I, I think I agree with that. There is an interesting issue you just pointed out about uh, the fact that now they, there doesn't seem to be um, diminishing costs here as time goes on. In fact, by putting more satellites in orbit, it becomes more difficult to reach up there and do something about it because it's more cluttered. Uh, there's no, in many fields, it becomes cheaper the more you do something. And in this field, it doesn't seem to work that way. And well, that, it that's an interesting observation. It does, but the economies of scale are just a little bit different. Mm hmm. Hmm. There's, there is clutter. So what does your organization do? If somebody were to call you up and say, Mike Maloney, I would love to hire your company to help us with, uh, with design for recovery, what would you do for them? Well, I don't do anything. I'm advocating for okay. debris removal. I'm, I'm really not uh, offering any services. I, I created this uh, sort of in my spare time to say, uh, to get the message out, guys, let's, uh, mm -hmm. let's change. My, my colleagues in the industry I talk to and say, let's do this. And, and it's, it's one of those grassroots things that says, yeah, let's think about this. If, if you're designing a satellite, let's think about recovery. What am I going to do with this? Uh, to the corporations, I would say, you know, when I put myself in a position of, of, of young engineer in 50 years or 80 years, it says, uh, they say, hey, Mike, uh, we're going to go recover the satellite. Uh, go figure it out. And I say, okay, so if I had to figure that out, I say, well, how is it built? Well, we don't know. Those records are lost. Uh, what materials was, were they using when they built it? We don't know. Those records were lost. I say, okay, let's keep those records. Let's, let's document our designs. Let's make them, you know, like them make it so we can recover them. Let's stop them from spinning in orbit once they're passivated. Let's, uh, let's study how we can create some drag device so that they'll stay stable and they won't spin so fast we can't recover them. Let's think about the challenge that somebody's going to face in 50 or 80 years or 100 years when they go up because everything's going to have to come down at some point. The, mm -hmm. the ecosystem that, that science fiction is built in our minds about what we're going to do in space and everything we're planning to do in space requires us to have access to space and we can't do that if it's littered with debris. 
So we're going to have to go up and get this stuff out of orbit at some point in time that's up above the, say, 700-kilometer uh, altitude. And, and remember, at low Earth orbit, because we stuff a bunch of stuff in low Earth orbit because it decays quicker, means there's more stuff to transit as we go up and come down. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't solve the problem. Uh, it just relocates the problem to a, a space where everybody wants to be because it's, it's where they need to be to, to meet the 25-year rule. Um, but, but we need to look at that whole ecosystem and how we're going to operate in it. So it doesn't really matter where we put it. We're probably going to have to be handling it at some point in the future. Mm -hmm. um, and that means that, for example, right now the rule says that if you're going to be in low Earth orbit, we want you to look at whether or not it needs a controlled or uncontrolled reentry so it doesn't present any risk to people on the ground. Well, we should be doing that for everything going in space because we don't know how we're going to dispose of it yet. It may be that things in uh, medium Earth orbit at the, ge at the uh, uh, global, at the uh, navigation level uh, are going to come down as well. So mm -hmm. right now, today, with the engineers that are building these satellites, we should be uh, analyzing the designs with the NASA model for reentry to decide whether or not they need controlled or uncontrolled reentry and, and put that at the licensing level uh, so that at one glance with the document, somebody can say, oh, that, that needs you know, controlled reentry or not. Because at some point in time, those records of the detail of the design, you don't want to have somebody looking back and say, well, is this going to actually melt on reentry or not? Um, so it's just, so these are small steps. They're not expensive. They just need to be done today because somebody in the future is going to have to try to figure this out and we should help them do their job uh, as opposed to making it more difficult to them because they've deployed a sensor over the launch adapter ring and it's not going to, we're going to, we're going to have to use a harpoon to go get a satellite out of orbit. It just doesn't make any sense. Okay. And I can tell our viewers and listeners from many, many industries wide, it's not just space, this problem of keeping records and documentation. It's a boring word, documentation, I understand, and nobody likes to hear it, but it's critical and it's far worse as a problem than you might think. You might think, well, of course companies keep records. No, <laughs> it's not so great. Even more interesting is if you look at the shuttle um, recovery of the West Star and Palapa satellites when they when they finally and, and this was this was you know concurrent with the design team that had built the satellites uh, at Hughes and uh, they had uh, built a, a truss structure for the shuttle bay that uh, to hold the satellites in when they came back to Earth and they tried to use the, the the truss structure and it didn't fit because one of the satellites designs had changed between the drawings and the build, and they weren't documented. So when they went and built this expensive piece of uh, gear, they didn't build it correctly with the right clearance because the design had changed. And that was just over the course of a year or so. So um, yeah, we're talking 50 years, it's impossible to believe that we're gonna have good records if people don't work at it really hard. Hmm. <laughs> and again, it's easy to do now, but difficult to do later. I mean, the information exactly. just disappears. Tell exactly us about right. the 25-year rule that you mentioned. Well, I don't know the exact history of it, but my reading of what it uh, turned out to be is, I guess there, a bunch of people got together and said, uh, what about 10 years? Everybody said, no. What about 25? Yeah, we could live with that. Yeah, let's live with that. Okay, well, just, okay, 25 years became the rule, but it didn't have any rigorous attached to it. Mm. It, it, was, it was sort of like by default. It was like long enough that nobody would really, you know, everybody's careers were over by that time, perhaps, and, and, they, didn't, and they didn't really think it through. And it's out there now and people are trying to figure out. And it's led to some interesting things about the altitudes we choose mm -hmm. to operate in. It's not complied with vigorously. 
and so as a rule, it's one of those things that, yeah, it's a good guideline, but it's not deterministic in terms of, uh, of what the risk is. And we kind of use it as a touchstone, but it's only kind of relative. Um, I think it's kind of immaterial though. I think there's a way to get, uh, the, the point is um, you have the 25 year rule, but if you were to make a rule that said that everybody operating something in space, um, regardless of whether it's operating or not, the fact that it's in space, that you, the company that owned it, had to provide ephemeris on that object for its entire time in orbit. You think about this, it dies, you're not, out, you're not generating any revenue from it anymore, mm -hmm. it's not conducting any work for you. And you're paying, say, $5,000 a week to pay some company to provide ephemeris on, from some tracking station somewhere. You'd be motivated to get that down sooner than 25 years. So the 25-year rule could become moot if you, were to, if you were to make operators pay for tracking, the, the burden they bring to the space surveillance network for their object in orbit, for their debris that threatens all the operating satellites. So I think the 25-year rule would kind of go by the wayside. Okay. There is a kind of a perverse incentive in place here not to design for recovery right now that you mentioned about companies issuing RFPs. Um, uh, back in, this is going back 20 years now when I was in my uh, early mid-20s, I was in the power generation field designing power plants and things like motor control centers and control panels and that. And uh, somebody might, an engineering outfit might issue a spec that would say we want a, a, to be able to read a temperature, let's say, or something like that, right, or a pressure. And there are many ways of solving this problem. I could put in a round analog gauge with a dial. I could put in a more complicated electronic thing. I could put in a PLC unit. I could put in a freaking computer if I wanted, right, with a lovely digital screen. And each one of those has a cheap to expensive cost to it. And I would have to make the decision based on what I felt I knew about the customer's actual requirements as to what they wanted and what I could get away with, right? And I wouldn't want to add on something as the, as the uh, manufacturer that would significantly increase the cost that the customer may well value, use, need, and that, but they didn't ask for. And that, you know, would result in when they got the bids together from all the bidders, comparing them across the board and going, uh-oh, Canigan's bid is 10% uh, higher because he chose to include this thing and, and they would just reject it outright, let's say, right? right. So how, what can companies do? What can manufacturers do and operators do to allow this design for recovery concept to be built in without screwing with the cost so much that it just makes people kick the bid out and say, forget it, we're not going to do this? There's a lot of design elements to the, the spacecraft bus and to the satellite in general that, that mm -hmm. happen that if people aren't thinking about recovery, they just go along and do. And if you say, well, we want to make it recoverable, they, they would, mm -hmm. these are very smart people. These, these are really, really smart guys. You know, every, this industry is loaded with really smart people. They'll, they'll solve the problem at low mass, at low volume. They, they can figure it out. The, you, the stuff they figured out already is pretty amazing. So I think it's easily solved for all their various buses. They can come up with these ideas if they think about it in advance and, and just make it an integral part of their bus. There's a lot of features uh, in, the, in the bus structure and the thermal and, and, and mechanisms. They, they, they do a great job of figuring that stuff out. And, and the customer just wants performance. They don't care how the performance is achieved. So you know, if you make a bus that's more recoverable than another bus, they might see that as a feature. And if you say it only costs you about 20 grams or, or a kilogram of mass, but we've saved mass over here, so it's uh, you know, zero uh, impact on your spacecraft, then that's a feature. 
And now, how do you incentivize to do that? Well, obviously, you need to mandate it if they're not going to do it voluntarily. But I have a feeling that operators are the, they're the people with the greatest at risk for debris. So they're incentivized to do this if you could just find a way to present it to them as something that's not going to cost them a massive amount of money uh, to do. You can't afford to be second best. You need to be first. And that requires speed. Now, if you're thinking that growth is supposed to be slow and steady, Frankly, the way I was taught back in the 90s in the operations management and business administration programs, you are too slow. We have to adapt. And in space, it's no different than anywhere else. People like to think they're special in space, and it is fun, all the stuff we get to work on. But business is business. The fundamentals nowadays are conservative growth is not good. You need to run as fast as you can and risk outstripping your supply lines, which means in our world, using up the capital that we've got. That's a risk. But there is no prize for second place. There certainly is no prize for third. If you want to scale operationally fast, come talk to us at Cold Star Tech. We are the process experts for scaling fast. Now back to the interview. Michael, how are you going about uh, spreading the word and getting people on board with your mission here. Uh, you're going to conferences and then talking to people and getting them to associate with you in some manner, obviously, and, and yes. join the throng. Um, but tell us about how that is working and who you're meeting and, and what the end result you expect to be is. And, and I thank you for this opportunity to get the word out. Uh, obviously, I have a website, uh, uh, satdfr.org, and, uh, and, I, and I write to it occasionally with some thoughts that I have. And uh, I wrote... Uh, you know, letters to the FCC uh, on their on their comments for uh, the debris issue, and uh, I talked to the Department of Commerce folks and Dr. Ja and others, mm -hmm. and and try to uh, you know put my word in. And what as I come up with ideas, I I try to spread the ideas around and uh, like the the uh, the idea that uh, operators should be working on or contributing to the space surveillance network. I I actually did work in the space surveillance network so many years ago. I don't want to admit it. And, uh, and so, you know, I have a little background in it. I worked on TCAS for collision avoidance through the airplanes when I was at MIT Lincoln laboratory. And so all of this work kind of just fits in with the idea that, you know, I spent all this time in the industry working on writing all these proposals. And back then we didn't have any concept of, of recovery or, or, or the end of life uh, planning and that sort of thing. And, uh, so the idea is to, just to get the word out, talk to people. Uh, I had the occasion of speaking with someone um, uh, in Houston, and I said, well, okay, so we're going to service satellites, but instead of just thinking about refueling the satellites, we need the ability to externally passivate failed satellites. Hmm. He looked at me with a smile on his face. He goes, no, I hadn't thought about that. That's a good point. We, need to, we might need to do that. The, the, the idea that we're designing for servicing, but external passivation wasn't part of their... Uh, specification, which I would strongly suggest everybody thinking about servicing. Let's make it so that I can get into the, the satellite and, and deplete it of its uh, stored energy, review the fuel, the pressurant, and, and zero out the batteries and, and put it into some configuration so it won't tumble and then, and then drag it out. You know, obviously failed geosatellites are top of my list of things that we need to get out of the operating orbit and get them up in the graveyard orbit. Um, so external passivation is one of those real important things we need to do. But it's not something you'd think about if you hadn't thought about, oh, I need to maybe do this one function. So requirements analysis is very important in this. Right. What was your website again? Uh, satdfr.org. Okay. So there, people can go to that. Yes, <laughs> I that. went to it earlier today. And, 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 I, and I will continue ranting there occasionally. Right. So how, I mean, 
we're going to know when you win, quote unquote, right? Uh, there'll be some sort of regulatory body or a process in place and it's mandated that they must do this design for recovery. And, and there is a process for debris removal that is going on all the time. And it's, again, just like the make space boring concept that, uh, right. that I promote. Right. It's just part of what we do. How do you know when you, you have begun to win? What will be the key indicators that tell you, okay, Mike, you're having a, an effect here? I don't think it'll ever be there um, mm. in, in, uh, in the next 10 or 15 years. It's just, it takes forever, it took mm. 10 years to get 21 guidelines agreed to that are, um, that I know it'll probably take another 10 years to escalate it to strong suggestions. Um, you know, I don't, uh, I, I think that starting to see some response from folks and the conference was good last week to, or, uh, to, to hear people talking about these subjects. I ESA went up and presented a design for um, removal idea. So I see that, um, you know, NASA years, these are, these are not new thoughts, by the way, design for demise was one of the original NASA objectives for everything. So it would, you know, burn up and uh, reentry. Um, so I think de design for demise is in fact what I'm talking about. Let's, Let's plan for the demise. And, and the other thing is, if we're going to recycle these uh, satellites in any way, and that's a really great use of things in orbit because they've already been lifted off the Earth, um, you know, knowing how they were built and what materials were used is really important understanding how to, how to use the materials. And, and I really like to have that documentation on how to uh, take it apart because I don't see us taking a bunch of sawzalls up in space uh, to cut solar rays and antennas and, and things like that off of a spacecraft bus. I think that's probably the wrong approach. <laughs> Go check it out in orbit at the time. It's yeah. probably too late. All right. Yeah. We yeah. have covered the fact that nation states, in a sense, cannot be trusted to continue to persist uh, existing. So who should be the body that collects all this information and keeps it? Well, I think that the manufacturers keep it. There's no reason to share it unless somebody needs the data and they just need to safeguard it. There's no reason to disclose their technology to anybody. I, mm. I think they can keep the records. And I mean, corporate records are kept all over the place. There's ways of doing that. And I don't think they need to be deposited anywhere or collected in any kind of central location. Um, they can keep the data. They just need to be able to be willing to allow people to have access to it. You know, Jason, the, the bottom line is they're probably going to be the people going up and doing this. I mean, I can't imagine that, that Lockheed or Loral or or Maxar, excuse me, uh, uh, or uh, Talos, or any of the other ones are not going to be participating in this going forward. So I, they're, the likely cases they're going to be act, act, um, accessing these records for, for their own design purposes. So the people that are well served by this are the people that are being asked to do it. Hmm. Okay. And I've talked a lot with uh, folks in the space insurance recently, uh, industry recently. And yeah, this, is, this kind of thing is not covered by space insurance either. I haven't seen any indicator of that. Uh, so, but there has to be some kind of protocol where if the manufacturer disappears, that data gets released somewhere or, or people know where it is so that it's accessible. Yes, I agree. But let me talk about insurance for a minute. That, you know, yeah. the, the, the whole problem here is that there are no consequences for mm. leaving debris in orbit. And there are no consequences for damage from debris. And, and we have several examples of that. Obviously, the, the, the Chinese ASAT test, the, uh, the latest Indian test, and, and of course, Iridium Cosmos. Um, you know, it didn't get adjudicated. Th these are real bad precedents that have been set already in the, in the debris world that, that there are, if, if we don't hold people accountable, there's no consequences to debris. 
then there is no insurance because you're there's the calculus doesn't work. You know, if I'm, I'm going to pay, I'm going to pay this much money over here to remediate, but the cost to not remediate is zero. Mm-hmm. You know, we know where that goes. I mean, that's, that's a pretty easy economic argument. So, so the, the, you know, the, until there's a consequence, until we hold ourselves accountable for debris, then there's no calculus by which any company or any government's going to say, I need to spend money to either design for recovery or remediate or, or do any of these things because there's no consequence. So, so somewhere in this discussion, there has to be some sort of pain, some kind of consequence for the debris. And the problem we have today is that money is not a sufficient remedy. We don't have a method for recovering the debris. So yeah, okay, I fine a company. If I make them bankrupt, I'm not serving anybody's purpose. If they leave a thousand satellites in orbit and they're bankrupt, now I've, I've revealed the fact that, that, you know, as a government now, I'm responsible for this private enterprise now leaving me this burden. Or, uh, so, so somewhere in this, in this tangle we've done with old space that has set this precedent, um, we have to figure out how new space is going to access space, uh, but not have to pay for old space and yet operate under different rules, perhaps, than, than we've done in the past, um, which is hard. This is a very difficult issue to solve. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's an excellent spot to leave it at. Uh, Satellite Design for Recovery is the name of your organization. Michael Maloney is my guest. Where and how is the best way for people to get in contact with you? Um, satyafar.org and it's uh, Mike at satyafar.org. They can send me an email, find me at conferences. Not hard to find LinkedIn. Yep, that's where I ran into you. (laughs) All right, Michael. Thanks for being here today. Thanks, Jason. I appreciate it. Nice talking to you.